listening from and welcome to indoor air quality radio it's friday august 26 2016 this week is episode 428 my name is radio joe hughes coming to you live from our studio in central city pennsylvania my engineer john you gotta have faith is here in the building with me the z-man is going to be off today but uh, we're going to go back in the archives and and go back through 10 years of IAQ Radio in an hour. Not going to be easy, but we're going to do it. And uh, before we do, let's thank our sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at their website, jondon.com. That's jondon.com. Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfacts with an X. IEQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Okay, and don't forget to check out the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. All right, no Z-Man, so I'm going to handle today's IAQ radio trivia question. <laughs> I threw, it for, threw you off a little bit, man. All right, today's trivia question is sponsored by the Healthy Building Summit at the Seven Springs Resort in Somerset, Pennsylvania. That'll be October 2021 and half a day 22 of this year. Check out more information on the IAQtraininginstitute.com website. It's IAQtraining.com. All right, so for today's trivia question, I'm going back, way back. I want to know the name of the first IAQ Radio Engineer. Uh, it should be pretty easy for those of you that have been listening for a long time, but our first engineer and uh, the first one to text it in or send an email to czlotnik at cs.com will get this week's prize. There was no trivia question last week because uh, we were just replaying a uh, flashback show. All right, so today we're going to Look back in the archives a little bit. Um, I was going through the last 10 years of IAQ radio show highlights, and it was very, uh, very interesting, but also a bit of a daunting task with 430 or so shows now. It was really tough to pull some clips together, but we did. And uh, John and I worked on it earlier this week. We've got some great clips from past shows. I want to start with one from our first technical director and and really our only technical director uh dr dietrich wow one part per million is very easily defined two ways and easy to remember if you have 16 gallons 16 gallons uh of gin and you put one drop of vermouth in it and you stir it all up very nicely now you have, obviously, a very dry martini, <laughs> and you have a scientific martini because it is a one part per million martini. No bartender knows that one, hopefully. <laughs> they don't have to. If you don't like alcohol, the 16 stays the same. If you have a distance of about 16 miles in Pittsburgh from my house to the airport, in round numbers is about 16 miles. If I were to measure, if I were stupid enough to measure that distance from my house to the airport with plus and minus one inch, it's obviously, it's almost impossible to do. Plus and minus one inch, that is one part per million. So what am I saying? I say in 16 gallons are about a million drops and in 16 miles are about a million inches, give or take a handful. But that, I mean, it is an incredibly small quantity. 
Okay, that was the good doctor, Dr. Dietrich Weil, who for many years served as our technical director, joined us here every week. He's now retired, but uh, doing well back in Carnegie, Pennsylvania. All right, the next clip I pulled together comes from an early show. Uh, this was back on episode 85, and and it's still one of my favorite uh, shows of all time. We had Dr. John Woulette. Dr. Ouellette is an MD and one of the earliest medical doctors, and actually he'll talk about his mentor, but I don't know about this one, who went out and looked at indoor environments and then saw that connection between the indoor environment and the health of the patients he was seeing. In this particular clip, we're going to talk a little bit about endotoxins. Can you talk a little bit about endotoxins and whether or not they play a role in allergic response? I never thought you'd ask. <laughs> <laughs> um, everybody gets excited about mold because we can see that. What we don't see is the gram-negative bacteria. If we have a sewer backup, if we have a, a wet carpet, if we have a dog that drags his butts and across <laughs> the wet carpet and gets yeah. the gram-negative material all over that, we are going to grow. We're going to grow the uh, gram-negative bacteria. Now, when you start thinking about microorganisms, uh, we start thinking about weapons of mass destruction. Every particular organism out there has their weapons of mass destruction. So the endotoxin is going to be trying to fend off the molds, the molds are going to try to fend off them, so everyone can produce these toxins so that they can have their place uh, on the map. Well, the gram-negative bacteria produce endotoxin, and that's a, a large molecule that if, all I can tell our people listening, if you go into a wet, damp house or one with a sewer, or you don't even need a sewer backup to get that, and then all of a sudden you get flu-like symptoms, you get headache, you feel just terrible, you feel rotten, and you're, you'll get inflammation of the airway, you get a stuffy nose, post-nasal drainage, cough, those are the classic symptoms that one gets uh, from that toxic product produced by endotoxin. Probably the guru of endotoxin is uh, Dr. Uh, Milton, uh, who was with Harvard, and Jack Spengler, who's the head of environmental and occupational, uh, environmental and occupational diseases from Harvard. And way back when I got into that, they were writing about the effects of uh, endotoxin and um, uh, Don Milton told me when we were at a course together at the University of Michigan, he said, someday you're going to find out that endotoxin is probably the cause of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, uh, or COPD, in most people. And it's amazing how uh, that particular, uh, how, how this keeps this seemingly, that, 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 how prophetic he was with that statement. So it's a very important material that's probably in every wet, damp houses. When we go back to the courthouse, we always talked about that courthouse case back in Florida where uh, people had headaches and they were sick and they were trying to do it all by studying moles. I would bet that place where the water in there was just stacked with endotoxin and that was the cause of that wall of diseases. As a matter of fact, they wanted to have a... a a court case in there, and the judge had so much asthma he had to get out of it when they were getting into this. Well, so, I just want to interrupt you for, for, for one second because I believe you're absolutely right. I saw a presentation made by uh, the lead investigator and the person that took all of these samples in that building, and they had an aerial view of the building. And guess what showed up in the aerial view as being directly next to that building was a sewage treatment plant, literally right. ne literally next door to it. Is that true? Absolutely. I, but I, I would bet that is, and, and you know, the, the, non, the people who said the glass is half empty when it comes to the building science and that we're barking up the wrong tree, these people never bring in the business of endotoxin as being important. I asked, I asked the investigator how many mold samples that he took, and these numbered in, if I'm not mistaken, in the tens of thousands. Thousands. That was Dr. Hodgson of uh, 
Hudson was one of them. Uh, th this actually was Phil Morey. And, and I, asked Phil, I asked Dr. Morey how many bacterial samples did he take, and it was zero. Yeah. And, and again, in, in studies that we've done in schools, um, where, we, where we had wet schools that had to be rehabbed and the teachers were sick, we uh, actually found very high levels of gram-negative bacteria in rooms where people had the most... This, this could be, we could go on and on about this, but Whoa. yes, it's a full equation. When you talk about bioaerosols, you're talking about moles, you're talking about gram-negative bacteria, and you're talking about dust mites, and then all the products that these will produce, plus all of the uh, building materials that are, that are worked on that are, that, that, are, uh, that are harmed by wet environments. And you take the plastics, the plasticizers, and all these other materials, they get wet, they produce other materials, and it all goes into a, a potpourri of mix of materials, and it's hard to separate which one causes it. The bottom line is, wet houses are a public health worry. There you go. Bottom line. Dr. Willette, that was, what, ten, almost 10 years ago, maybe a little less, eight years ago, and uh, haven't seen a whole lot of further study on that although now i guess i could take that back we're doing a lot more on the microbiome so uh, he did a great great job of of trying to get people to look at the big picture that microbial soup and actually uh, at one point i think it was uh, in the green book they talked about it and called it filth and uh, never really heard much since on the filth topic either. That that one never really went very far, but we'll keep bringing it up. All right, so next up, I've got another great, uh, you know, fan, we're a fan of her and, and very thankful to her for joining us on early shows. And then also again, back in 2010, actually the first time she visited was episode three back in 2006. And that's Dr. Harriet Burge. Don't recall for certain if this clip is from the 2006 show. I think it's actually from the 2010 show when she joined us again. And we were talking about mold in wall cavities. Can dried mold be safely allowed to remain in a wall or ceiling cavity? I'd like your kind of comments on that. I think it can be safely allowed. Um, a lot of people disagree with me on that, and I don't know whether they have information that I don't have. There are situations where you would not want to leave mold in the walls, um, very um, uh, high-risk situations where, for example, you know you have an asthmatic that is very sensitive to mold. Uh, you probably would not want to leave the mold in the house, but if everybody is normal and nobody is having symptoms, and the, the mold in general doesn't get out of the wall if it's in there, it's it doesn't get out and you can actually prevent it from getting out by even just by putting those little plugs in your electrical outlets you know that to prevent kids from sticking stuff in them mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean those little covers um, and because those are the major openings where the mold comes out of the wall and into the house and in general you don't see much mold coming out except on rare occasions um, and the, whether or not it comes out of course depends on the wind direction and so forth but just doing that one little thing would um, would uh, prevent the small chance that that um, mold would come out. Most of the time I've done it, I've, well, the studies that I've actually done looking directly at those electrical outlets haven't shown much that, that of the mold getting into the house. Okay, that was Dr. Harriet Burge. We also had another well-known mycologist and Ph.D., very experienced in in the uh, bioaerosols world and that was dr chin yang dr yang joined us back in uh, episode 88 in july of 2008 but he also came back for a later show this particular clip is from that july 2008 episode 88 show and we we're talking about the interpretation of airborne fungal results yeah i before I get into that, I want just to say this. You probably know the spores in air can change, and we know it changes with time, change with change with space. The very basic and typical approach is to compare with what's indoors and outdoors, which makes common sense is that if you find something in the indoor air but not outdoor air, 
That means there's a very good possibility it's what's inside but not outside was probably originate from inside. And that's what I say, it's very basic, very simplistic. And over the year, I have developed and, and evolved into a, a many steps type of comparison. For example, if you do air sampling and analyze the sample by uh, spore counting, comparison of total concentration, it's, it's pretty much most of the time not very useful. In fact, more importantly, it's to recognize the so-called indicator or marker fungal spores. For example, ketomium, stachybotrys, or menoniella spores, eucalyptus spores, are not very common outdoors or indoors. So anytime if you see some of these indicator spores, it's a very strong hint or indication you may have moisture problems. Now, if you get this hint, then you compare your nose, say, yes, I know this building has water damage history. Then when you put two and two together, then you get, you have a better picture. Now, a lot of time people also very focus on so-called aspergillus penicillium spores. To me, aspergillus penicillium spores are secondary in terms of importance because aspergillus penicillium spores include a lot of other kind of spores uh, not in aspergillus or penicillium at all. So it's, it's a mixture of a lot of different things. So if you compare aspergillus spores, penicillium spores, indoor and outdoor, really did not give you a good pictures at all. But sometimes it can be useful if the difference indoors and outdoors are statistically different enough. That kind of implies to tell people that sometimes you may need to do statistics to compare what's indoors and outdoors to see if they are in fact different. I a lot of times see consultants say, okay, indoors aspergia penicillin 100, outdoors 80. So 100 is 20, spores per meter cube higher than outdoors, then yes, you got problem. Now, if you do statistics, 180 indoor and outdoors may not be different enough at all. So the approach can be very complicated. The general principle of indoor and outdoor comparison is fine, but there are more details we need to look into. And in a lot of these microbial data, you're going to find they are actually including two sets. The first set of data are the IDs, what we call qualitative results. And the second set of data are the numbers. Now, numbers are always relative. Don't use microbiological data of numbers in absolute conditions. They, you need to compare. Now, the qualitative data are much more important. If we know the fungi, the type of species or type of spores identified, if we know them enough, we can tell a story behind it. And I mentioned about stachybotrys, ketomium, menoniella, eurocladium, these types of fungi spores are now very common indoors, particularly in a dry, clean environment. If you find them, even sometimes one single spot can be an indication of some moisture issues. So ecological information, qualitative uh, data are much more important in interpretation. And numbers can be useful, but use the numbers in relative comparison purpose only. Okay, that was Dr. Chin Yang, and that was back in... Uh Oh, 2008, I believe that particular clip was from. Very, we had, we had a lot of good guests that year, and I pulled another one actually from the following week, episode 89. We had Dr. Jim Sublette. Uh, he's an MD medical doctor, and he was at, I believe he had just, uh, just passed along the presidency of the AAAAI, the American Academy of Asthma Allergy. 
and immunology. And, you know, one of the simple questions we asked, but it was a very good and interesting answer, was just very simply, you know, what is an allergy and how do the allergy doctors define it? What's an allergy? An allergy, what we call as allergist, uh, is an immune response. Uh, you know, the lay public tends to call allergy generically just about anything that causes a respiratory irritation. But we, uh, as allergists, think of this as an immune response that's um, triggered uh, by a, um, an antibody we call IgE. I know Don Olet, I mean, uh, John Olet calls it uh, the evil antibody, IgE. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, Everyone's capable of making a little bit of it. The people that have allergies are predisposed, again, genetically to make a lot of it, and then they'll make a aller- a, this antibody against very specific things. You know, for instance, I mentioned alternaria moles. You may have an antibody made against that alternaria mole. And when you get around that, an- that mole spore, you then react, and it triggers an allergic response. Kind of a way to... Uh, picture this would be like if you if you think of being burned because that's what happens in an allergy response you get a inflammation usually of the mucosal membranes in the uh, airway and either the nose or sinuses of the lung so that's kind of like the allergy response kind of acts like a flame and that that burns the airway and you then you have the inflammation and that's what we distinguish between what we call an irritant trigger, which would be after you've got the inflammation, you may get around something like a strong odor or a smell, and that will trigger a very similar type end result, but you're not really allergic to that odor or smell. You just have the irritation of that. Now, some people will have a direct effect where they don't really have the allergy immune response, and, and some people may have a overreaction, so to speak, to... Um, you know, strong odor smells, particulates, and so forth. So it's it's a little more complicated, I think, than, than sometimes we we like to think. And uh, it was great to have Dr. Sublet join us. And um, if you get a chance, that was a great show back in episode 89. Now, the next two clips, and we'll just play them one right after another, come from at one point, and I haven't looked again recently, this was our most downloaded show ever and it was a topic that you normally wouldn't expect to be so interesting to people, but it was on toxicology and epidemiology. And we had Dr. Charles Gilbert on discussing that back on episode 130 in June of 2009. And of course, first we had to talk about the famous all substances or poisons quote, and then uh, talked a little bit about what toxicology is. So let's hear Dr. Je- Dr. Charles Gilbert. Hormesis probably goes into the range um, what Paracelsius said when when he was um, getting involved in toxicology, and he's considered to be the the godfather or the grandfather of toxicology. And what he said, and I may be ruining this this quote, he said that um, all substances are poisons, and there are virtually no substances that are not poisons. And it is the dose that di- differentiates uh, remedy from poison. Mm-hmm. Toxicology is the the study of uh, biological, chemical, and physical agents on, uh, let's call it, um, living systems. It can be bacteria, fungus, uh, it can be um, um, amoeba, it also can be um, worms, (laughs) it can be insects, um, and any impact that a biological, chemical, or physical agent has on any sort of living system uh, can be classified in the area of toxicology. My, the particular area that, that I am most fond of and I have focused in on is human toxicology. Okay, that was Dr. Charles Gilbert. Again, uh, episode 130, June of 2009. At one point, uh, like I say, the, the most downloaded show in the history of IAQ Radio, so we had to get a couple clips on from Dr. Gilbert. The next show is a a pioneer in the indoor air quality world. Uh, Unfortunately, he passed away fairly recently. Uh, He joined us, and you may have heard in the clip earlier where Cliff was talking to Dr. John Ouellette, and they were discussing an earlier project where thousands of samples had been taken, and uh, this was uh, Dr. Phil Moray, uh, a pioneer again in the indoor air quality world and 
at the point uh, when we interviewed him, and I guess this would have probably been like 2007 or 2008, um, we were asking him if he still felt the emphasis that IAQ problems that stem from mold is still correct. And you'll hear the whole Q&A right now. You know, you'd mentioned different things such as slime and amoeba and, and so on and so forth. Do you feel that the emphasis placed on mold as a cause of indoor environmental problems is appropriate, understated, or overblown? I'd say it's appropriate. It's about where it should be, but there probably should be uh, more emphasis on, uh, uh, like, mold components, like glucans, uh, like... Uh, ultrafine uh, particulate from uh, spores and uh, hyphofragments, things of that nature. Uh, there should be more emphasis on actinomycetes and uh, uh, the uh, components of biofilms, uh, things uh, like that. Uh, protozoa, uh, back, back uh, the TVA building in the, uh, that I talked about, my first building investigation, lots of protozoans in the drain pans. Yet, you don't see much research or publication uh, on, on potential effects on people. And unfortunately, to this day, I haven't seen much on, on the protozoa and, and, and any uh, research along those lines, although maybe in the new uh, microbiome work that they're doing, they're, they're doing a little bit on that than I realize. But uh, that's a good question. I'm glad we listened to that one again because I'm going to – I'm going to put that one up on the flagpole a little more here in the future and see if we can't get someone else to talk about it. All right. The next clip I've got is from a 2009 show, episode 132, and this is Bud Offerman. Bud Offerman is out of the San Francisco Bay Area, great uh, building science guy, indoor air quality guy, done a lot of work over the years. We were lucky to have him on. And uh, we were talking a little bit about indoor air quality parameters, and a um, question came up about carbon monoxide. The guideline that we would select, for instance, uh, for the ASHRAE safe air criteria would be the EPA NAQS guideline of nine parts per million. Um, this is for like an eight-hour exposure. And so if we go into an office building and we see that the concentrations are, let's say, um, you know, seven ppm. You'd say, well, that's below nine. I guess we're okay. Well, this is where the risk factor, or risk management comes in. You also measure outdoors, and you measure outdoors, and it's one part per million. And in indoors, you're seven. You're under the guideline, but because the indoor concentration is higher than the outdoor concentration, that data by itself says that there's a source of carbon monoxide being generated in the building. And since carbon monoxide can kill people, uh, one needs to uh, take that as a big red flashing light and um, find out what that source is. So perhaps it's going to get worse and uh, we're going to have a catastrophe. So the guideline is typically set to be, yes, we'd like to be under 9 ppm, but we also do not want to see concentrations higher indoors and outdoors. And that's where, just like with mold, uh, you have to bring some statistics into play because, uh, like, for instance, if you have 32 mold spores uh, indoors and uh, 28 spores per cubic meters outdoors, is that significantly different? No. Uh, with carbon monoxide, we're looking at typically what the instrumentation we're using is like a 2 ppm difference. Um, so... Uh, that's where we stand. Uh, that's what we're looking at interpreting carbon monoxide. We, do, we don't want to see it uh, more than a couple ppm above outdoors. Some good, good advice from Bud Offerman. All right, next up, before we go to our halftime, I want to get one more clip in here. This one is from episode 174 back in July of 2010. And um, I, I've focused mostly on indoor air quality and some building science in this show, and Cliff's going to do one on restoration, but this kind of crossed over into both. We had Ed Cross on, who we called the restoration lawyer, and uh, we were talking about a question on a settlement, so let's play Ed Cross, the restoration lawyer. Before we leave the mold litigation issue, 
I, I recall not long ago seeing um, news reports of a settlement from the Philadelphia Public Housing Authority, I believe it was. It was like $7.5 million for a girl that had an asthma, you know, episode and then ended up disabled, essentially. Was that reported accurately, or are you aware of that case? I, I haven't researched that particular one, but there are, uh, like I say, some big, uh, some big verdicts and some big settlements that are continuing to come up, but I think that um, the, uh, the odds are generally in favor of a defendant on a case where the plaintiff is alleging a mold-related illness, especially if it's something outside uh, the normal types of illnesses that are associated with these exposures like allergies and asthma. And um, I tell people if they're going to go beyond allergies and asthma, uh, they're in for a real fight. And I, I think that continues to for the most part to this day, although there have there seems to be a few more of these mold cases making it to court, and uh, we'll, we'll see. And we're going to bring on a couple of attorneys here later in the year to discuss that in a little more detail. All right, we're going to go to halftime. Before we do, I want to just let people know in the second half, I've got some great clips here. The first one we'll play after. The uh, halftime is a gentleman that's been on the show probably more than anyone else, uh, also somewhat controversial, which is, you know, that's good. We like to get both sides of issues. And then uh, I've got another old clip from a, a dear friend of the show. So we'll be back in about 90 seconds with the second half of today's highlight show. And thanks to our association sponsors. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. The Restoration and Specialty Cleaners Association who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Remember, Triska is your link to industry training certification, standards, and events. Their website is trsca.org. Thanks to our advertisers. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Visit them at legends-enviro.com. And Particles Plus. They are engineers and manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters, air quality monitoring instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. Particlesplus.com. Count on us. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at their website, jondon.com. That's jondon.com. Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com. IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Okay, the next clip we've got in our highlight show, we're going back through 10 years of IAQ Radio, and I, I, would, I would be just remiss if I didn't have this particular person on and do a little highlight from him. Uh, Dr. Richie Shoemaker. Uh, Richie's joined the show one, two, three, uh, four, five, maybe even six times over the years. And um, every time we get a lot of people listening in, and we also, uh, I tend to get a few uh, emails that are critical and uh, a few emails that are supportive of uh, what Dr. Shoemaker's doing. He doesn't shy away from any controversy, and uh, we always love having him. So here's one that wasn't very controversial, but I thought it was very interesting. We were talking about the categories 
of health effects. And normally we see it broken into three uh, categories whenever we see training for mold remediation people or indoor air quality people. And we were talking about maybe, maybe there should be a fourth category. So here's Dr. Richie Shoemaker. There's an expression to keep in mind is that we always need to challenge today's hypothesis tomorrow and reevaluate tomorrow's data the week after. And <laughs> looking back at, at that idea, uh, there are at least four categories of illness, um, and, and irritation is certainly a, a, a very common problem that I see, so I agree with you. Uh, we should add an irritant uh, aspect to, to people who are made ill by exposure to water-damaged buildings, but you know, uh, infection is, is hardly something I think we should lump in the water-damaged building category. I, I would tend to pull that out because most of the problems that I see with fungal infection are not really related to a water-damaged building per se. It's underlying host factors, uh, something wrong with a person as opposed to their exposures. So we can, we can discuss that, but in any event, it's not a large number of people compared to those who have allergy. And, and let's be specific, when we talk about immunological functions, allergy is part of the immune problems of concern, and it's called the acquired immune response. And you hear about immune globulin E as a marker for that. That certainly is elevated in people with nasal allergy and asthma. Uh, and allergy to molds is, is, is something that I see every day, uh, uh, every physician does. But that does not necessarily imply the allergy is to a mold growing in a water-damaged building. So we need to put a kind of an asterisk on that one. Uh, and under immunologic, if we are going to be breaking out into two main arms, acquired being, to say, the left arm, the right arm is innate immunity or innate immune responses. And we're going to talk a lot about that because that's my interest, and uh, I think it's a huge problem. But allergy and innate immunity are separate. They're, they're, they're related. They're, they act in concert in the body, but they really are two different things. Uh, when you say toxicity, uh, it's important to keep in mind that uh, it used to be that people focused primarily on uh, toxins made by fungi. And, and we know uh, in the indoor environment of water-damaged building, it's a fairly unique ecological environment. And sure, you've got some interesting groupings of fungi <clears throat> making toxins they might not necessarily make outdoors, but there also you find problems with bacteria making toxins. Uh, we know that organisms that kind of in between a fungus and a bacteria, I'd call them actinomycetes, also make a huge suite of toxins. We know that there are some uh, mycobacteria, you know, the, the group of organisms that we think about with tuberculosis, they're emerging uh, from the from the the mud, so to speak, and we know that they make toxins that hurt us as well. Okay, sorry, that was a little, that was Dr. Richie Shoemaker, a fascinating gentleman who uh, we've had on the show quite a few times, and we've also gotten people with the opposite opinion on the show. I remember in particular Dr. Ron Gotts came on and uh, a few others, so we try and try and uh, get both sides of issues on there and, and we also try to be a little entertaining from time to time and this is probably one of our more entertaining guests over the year uh, over the years and it, I'm going back a little into the archives further than than I realized but this was back in uh, February of 2008 episode 68 and we had a mycologist on Mac Pierce McGregor Pierce and we were talking about rot and, and the difference between dry rot, wet rot, brown rot, right, white rot, etc. Let's let's hear it from from the man himself, McGregor Pierce. Real quick follow up on the the rot issue, Mac. What's the difference between dry rot, rot and wet rot? Well, dry rot uh, describes the appearance of the wood that looks like it's been dried out. What really you have are two, the two distinctions that are more accurate are white rot and brown rot. The brown rots, remember I was talking about lignin being this complex molecule. Now when you get, you get photosynthesis and the sun shines, the green plants take that sunlight and turn carbon dioxide, water, and sunlight into sugar, glucose. And the glucose is then fashioned into two chain polymers. One's called cellulose, the other's called starch. 
Starch is digestible and easy to degrade. Cellulose is more durable and more difficult to degrade. So plants build themselves out of cellulose and feed themselves on starch, all made from sunlight. And then all the molecules of life basically stem from that. Now, cellulose is the most common thing made by plants. The second most common product is lignin. And lignin is this very complex organic compound that provides wood with its stiffness. Cellulose is soft and flexible, like the blade of grass, but the twig or the straw, that's the more, the more lignin you have, the more brittle and st- the wood becomes. Now, wood itself has got a lot of lignin in it, and it's got a lot of soft cellulose and hemicellulose and sugars. It's got a whole variety of things. But the brown rot will only digest enough lignin to expose the pockets of soft, sugary goodies. So the wood rot that produces the brown rot will digest through the lignin to get at the goodies, but not waste a lot of energy eating the lignin. The white rots will turn the whole wood to fluff by digesting all of the lignin. They get the clean plate club pin for doing a better job, but lignin digestion isn't as rewarding as eating sugar. It's kind of like the difference between eating a carrot and eating a spoonful of white sugar. The white sugar being the soft contents of the wood, the lignin being the more difficult to digest stuff. So what the brown rot does is it leaves most of the lignin behind so the wood looks like it's been dried out. It, in fact, is a wet process and requires the wood to be soaking wet in order for the, like all the fungi, they're food absorbers. What they do is they extrude digestive enzymes into the environment around them, and these digestive enzymes require water to work. So they have liquid as the medium for the digestion to occur. The surrounding material is digested into nutrient, which is then absorbed into the feeding body of the fungus, which then incorporates the new nutrition into building more fungus. So the fungus absorbs the paper or the canvas or the shoe leather or the sheetrock or the piece of wood, depending on the species, and then turns it into mold or rot or mushroom, and eventually the whole thing is tending towards dirt, breaking down the complex built-up life form, whether it's paper or shoe leather or whatever, and turning it into dirt. And these these various fungi have digestive organisms, uh, enzyme arrays that can digest keratin, like human skin, cellulose, uh, chitin, that's insect skin. There's a whole variety of different digestive enzymes these guys have. And each fungus has a different water requirement and a different uh, food requirement, what it can handle. They all work together as a team, and basically any organic material winds up being returned to a soil form where it then provides nutrients for new life. And that was Mac Gregor Pierce. He was with us back, it was very early on, in uh, February of 2008. All right, I've got another clip here. This was episode 118, March of 2009, and there was a question that always kind of I, I, I drove me crazy. I couldn't figure out why. You know, there's the gram-negative, gram-positive bacteria, and basically one, you know, rejects the stain, one accepts the stain. It's the first level in determining what type of bacteria you're dealing with, and I could never figure out why just the gram-negative created the endotoxin, and and so we had Jason Dobronic on, and uh, Dr. Dobronic is with EMSL out in uh, New Jersey there. And we, we asked him about that and, and, and got a little more detail from him. So let's listen to Dr. Jason Dobronic. No, it is. It's not a theory. It's actually it, it's based on, on uh, their cell wall. It's a component of their cell wall. It's the polysaccharide layer. So it, for the bacteria, it's a very important part of, of how they're made up and how, how their cells evolved. Um, for us, however, for, for the human impact is, is that we react to that cell wall component, that polysaccharide, they call it LPS, lipopolysaccharide layer. And to us, when we get that inside of us, that reacts and, and gives us the effect. So it's not specifically they, they came out to produce this endotoxin to somehow, you know, harm people or do, or do something. It's just that we're reacting to something that's naturally they, they need as part of their cell wall, how they evolved. I see. And then that... and it's only gram negatives that, that are set up that way. They're the ones that have this, this LPS uh, layer the gram positives do not so all right that was dr dobranik and then um the next clip i've got here is from 
episode 25 going way back into the archives february of 2007 although we've had this gentleman on three or four times now uh well known in the iaq world jeff may let's listen to a clip from jeff may and then uh another my other sort of little pet theory has to do with enzyme exposures from uh from detergents i think that uh the number of number of detergents that have enzymes in them has increased tremendously and it's probably um, you know 70 80 percent of the market and and I think that the enzyme residues in in clothing and in sheets and pillows that that's the uh, you know can cause asthma symptoms you know speaking of enzymes uh, many of the quote-unquote green all-natural cleaning products are, are based on enzymes uh, could you comment on that? Well, I, I I don't have so much of an argument really with using en- enzymes for just for hard surface cleaning, but the, the the real problem with enzymes in detergents is that it produces a lot of aerosol. There's resi- there are residues that are left on the clothing, and there are residues that get into the uh, you know into the lint. So. So people are breathing it in, and that's really where you know where I have my issue. That that uh, I know that the the industry claims that there are no there's no allergy to the, the, this particular protease. It's called subtilis in the in the general public, but in the manufacturing plants, they had very very high rates, over fifty percent sensitization, and a lot of that was occupational asthma. So we know that subtilis is a very potent. Uh, asthmogen, and uh, and the, the the claim is that the manufacturers all claim well there is no residue that'll cause sensitization on the clothing, but I I I found otherwise. Okay, that was Jeff May, and uh, it was great to have Jeff several times now, and we'll be getting him back again. All right, there's another show I just had to get a clip from. It's one of the more memorable shows in my mind. And, and it's a topic I don't think we talk enough about. Uh, we had Rachel Herz on, H-E-R-Z. This was back in January of 2009. And we were talking about odors and, and, and the scent of things. And uh, her book was called The Scent of Desire. And it's still fascinating to me. I still have uh, my copy here and go back to it from time to time. So let's listen to... Uh, Dr. Hers and her discussion on the scent of desire. Well, actually, we do not smell while we dream. And a colleague of mine who is a sleep research expert, we conducted an experiment to see actually whether or not you actually smell the bacon and then wake up or vice versa. And it turns out that you have to wake up first in order to smell the bacon. We actually cannot smell while we were in either deep sleep or dreaming sleep. When we're very light sleep, it's possible to have a little bit of olfactory sensation, but not in, not in dreaming sleep and not in deep sleep. So what happens typically we don't realize it, but we have these little micro-awakenings, and they occur more frequently in the morning. So the idea of, you know, smelling the coffee and that wakes you up or the bacon and so forth, it's because we've had this little tiny episode of actually being awake, and that's when that smell can get in, and then we might get more aroused, and that might wake us up because we realize we're hungry, and that's a fantastic smell. That was a fantastic show in general. We talked about, you know, using the sense of odor for or the sense of smell for uh, doing investigations and uh, talked about why people, you know, some people perceive an odor as good and others consider that same odor as bad. And uh, it was just a great show. I urge people to go back and and listen to Dr. Hers. That was episode 109. And here's another great show we had, episode 131, June 2009, with Bill Rose, Dr. Bill Rose, uh, University of Illinois, uh, I think it's Urbana or Champaign, one of the University of Illinois branches, and uh, we were talking about uh, building science with Bill, and uh, this was his discussion on building science and what it is. <laughs> it's a, it is an odd term, and rarely, we don't, well, the, the public doesn't talk about it, building scientists talk about it among one another, but people outside of building science rarely ask that question. Uh, we know what science is, and we know what buildings are, and 
believe building science is just science applied to, to buildings. Um, but to take that just a little bit further, we know sciences can be sort of inductive or deductive. Like biology begins as an inductive science where you look around and you see that plants don't move, but animals do. And um, by looking at the conditions that are outside in the real world, begin to draw organization charts and, and begin to make sense and order of uh, what would otherwise be a pretty chaotic situation. A deductive science sort of starts from principles and draws conclusions. Uh, input leads directly to output. And uh, building science is sort of both. The people who model say, here are the physical principles, and so buildings ought to do this. But the inductive scientists will say, Let's look around and see what buildings are actually doing and what people are doing in buildings. Let's look at how healthy people seem to be in different environments. Uh, uh, to me, that's one of the important distinctions that science teaches, uh, induction versus deduction in the approach to buildings. Okay, Bill Rose, by the way, if you ever get a chance, his book is up on my shelf here. It's called Water in Buildings. Fantastic uh, book, still very relevant today, uh, Dr. Bill Rose. Next up, I've got another building science kind of guy. Actually, there's going to be two. The next one is Sam Rashkin. Sam is now with the Department of Energy. He was with EPA and their Energy Star program and the Indoor Air Plus program. He's the chief architect at Department of Energy now. We've had Sam on a few times. This particular clip is from November 2009, and we were talking about how the Indoor Air Plus program handles crawl spaces. And crawl spaces are a huge issue within the industry, so I thought I'd uh, pull this clip out of the archives and put it on today for our listeners. Sure. Uh, the differences are that in traditional construction, we used to build what are called vented crawl spaces. So we would, we would again, have a, um, uh, a very low space below the floor that um, that's, has a wall around it with ventilation, and we would insulate the floor above the crawl space. And the ventilation would bring in, in the summer, very hot, humid air, and in the winter would bring in very cold air. And then the insulation that would go on the floor would be your thermal boundary from the house to that crawl space. Now, uh, I'll go into how that works in a second, but first let me explain the difference between what's required for Air Plus. With Air Plus, what happens now is we seal the crawl space with poly and tape it at the seams and bring it up the walls and uh, secure it with a furring board and, and, and keep it set so that the moisture from the ground cannot get in the crawl space. And then we don't put any vents in the walls and treat the crawl space almost like a mini basement. There'll be a one heating duct or a supply duct there, and the insulation goes on the walls, not on the flat floors above the crawl space. And that's required for a number of reasons. First, with an open crawl space that's vented, as was done in traditional construction, you're creating a recipe for all sorts of high risks of moisture problems. You're bringing, again, hot, humid air in the summer. Our building science tells us that heat and humidity want to go from more to less. And you have right above that crawl space less heat, air-conditioned space, and less moisture, dehumidified space. So you have a driving force to push the heat and humidity in the crawl space right up into the floor. And in the floor, you have insulation that's very difficult to install that's flat because it tends to drop off the floor, and that's typically fibrous, fibrous, which means that the airflow can go right through it. Fibrous insulation doesn't stop airflow, it stops thermal flow. So you have a driving force, you have a porous material, and you have the ability for the hot, humid condition or air to reach a cold surface, which leads to condensation, all sorts of risks of mold, mildew, and moisture problems. It's a recipe for disaster. On top of that, it's much less efficient because the airflow bypasses the insulation. You wind up with cold floors in the winter and hot floors in the summer. So it's higher bills, less air quality, and more cost often because you have all that insulation in the floors. And it's very, very difficult, if near impossible, to do uh, effectively. So in contrast, when you insulate the walls, you seal up the crawl space, you save 
often at least 12 pounds of moisture coming through the ground into that space. You don't have the other moisture from the outside coming through the vents. You have effectively, again, a mini basement that's conditioned, that's dry, and your floor above is above an, almost an ambient temperature space. So it's not cold in the winter, not hot in the summer. Your utility bills go way down, and you have less bugs, less moisture, less dust. It's far superior. And that was Sam Rashkin. Next up, I've got another building science guru, actually the main man. We had him back in February of 2008. This is Dr. Joe Steebrook on the single most important building science concept. Is there a single most important building science concept for North America? Yeah, Keep the rain out of your damn building. Okay. <laughs> okay. Anybody not get this? <laughs> <laughs> Apparently everybody. There's, there's quite a few that don't get it. Yeah, right. if, you, if you can't keep the rain out of your building, like, give up. There's nothing else that you should, you know, worry about. But, you know, roofs leak, windows leaks, walls leaks, basements leaks, foundations leaks, you know. If, you know, that's 80% of the problem is just dealing with liquid phase water. It's, it's amazing. You'd kind of think that... After building 10,000 years on this planet, we've had like that figured out, but apparently not. So 80% is liquid phase, and the other 20% is not liquid phase. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Well, that would make it vapor or solid. Right. In Canada, they worry about solid. In the United States, we only worry about solid basically in ice, you know, to keep our scotch cold, but um, we're mostly focused uh, with the vapor phase. You know, after we kind of the liquid phase. You know, building these beautiful buildings, what building science concepts do architects seemingly fail to understand? Well, that, look, if a building enclosure needs to separate the inside from the outside. And to do that, you have to keep the rain and groundwater out. Secondly, you need to keep the outside air out and the inside air in. Thirdly, you want to make sure that you keep the vapor out or let the vapor out, depending on where you are. And finally, you need to keep the heat out uh, in the summer and the heat in in the winter. And that's it. I mean, it doesn't take a lot to understand what you have to do. But if you're never taught this, you don't get it. And it's not just the architects. The contractors have forgotten this, and so have the engineers. In engineering, all we learn about is how to size a beam and how much air or fluid goes through a pipe or a duct. Um, you know, contractors were taught how to build things on time and on budget. We just have no idea about how they work or not. So we're getting all kinds of stuff being built on time and on budget that doesn't work. <laughs> and nobody's being taught it in, uh, by the professions. It's, it's a great time to be a consultant. You kind of just walk around, shake your head, send them a bill, and move on to the next building. It's great. Well, John, I'm wondering, is, do you see that changing at all? Well, yeah, I mean... Change is pretty easy to figure out in, in, in this country. Um, things become intolerably bad, and then they change. They are just beginning to become intolerably bad. Um, you know, nobody cared until people started taking other people's money away with respect to mold. Right? Well, you know, it's a pretty good point, Joe. You know, you have all this litigation and so on and so forth, and a lot of building in parts of the country is done the building code. You know, where were the writers of the building code when building science concepts were being caught? Well, okay. The building code is a reactive document, not a proactive document. I'm going to give you my little story of code development here. Um, look, not too many people understand that thousands of Americans would die every year 150, 200 years ago as a result of waterborne diseases. And it got intolerably bad, and so we had to regulate it. So we had to get the feces out of the water. Um, hence, we got a plumbing and sanitation code. So the first building code of any kind was a plumbing and sanitation code, because if you didn't have one, 
you would die. <laughs> I mean, you know, you think about it. The most important thing after a natural disaster is what? Clean right. water. All right, so then what happened? Well, you know, 100 years ago, Mrs. O'Leary's cow kicked over a lantern and burned down the city of Chicago. Now, it shouldn't have been a surprise. I mean, everybody knew it was coming. You couldn't put that kind of, that type of construction with that many people, with that type of lifestyle, and not lose an American city. We had a historic precedent, right? We, we lost uh, London three times, Rome twice, America was due, Chicago was the first. Not too many people will remember that the very next year we lost Boston, but nobody remembers the great Boston fire because Boston always finishes second. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, we then had the second code added, which was the fire code. Now, we called it a building code, but it wasn't a building code. It was a fire code. So we added a very sophisticated fire code to an already mature plumbing code. Then what happened? Well, we had structural failures. Uh, we had, um, you know, Hurricane Andrew. We had uh, the Northbridge earthquake, which shook us up literally and figuratively because it didn't behave the way we plot, we thought. And so things became intolerably, ba intolerably bad, and we've just beginning, we've just finishing adding a sophisticated structural code. So we took a plumbing code, we then added a fire code, then we added the structural code, but only after things became intolerably bad. Now the people who run the codes are the last people who happen to change them. You know, the fire people still dominate most of the building code writing. They're now being challenged for supremacy by the structural people. You know, structural people, you don't ask structural people about water control. And the fire people, they want buildings to be wet so they don't burn. So they're not the folks to ask. And so now it's the building science turn because we fix the plumbing and sanitation, we fix the fire, we fix the structure. Now we have to get the feces out of the air. and that's a moisture airflow uh, issue and structural engineers fire engineers plumbing engineers are not the people to do it so the code is always a decade to two decades behind addressing the current problems and that was dr joe steebrook great great show there that was back in uh 2008 episode 71 all right i, I realized when i was doing this we were going to run out of time, and uh, I hadn't even really gotten beyond 2010, 2000. I think the latest clip we had in here was maybe 2011, and uh, we still had four years to go, and I couldn't get it all in in one show, so I'm going to do another one of these. But before we go, I did want to get at least a little flavor of some of our more recent shows with a short clip from uh, a Yale professor Dr. Jordan Peccia, and uh, we've been talking a lot about the microbiome of the built environment. Dr. Peccia is one of the, you know, top researchers in that area, and uh, we were talking a little bit about probiotics, so we're going to wrap it up with Jordan Peccia, a short clip just to kind of whet your appetite for what we've got coming up on the next highlight show and where we're headed for the rest of this year. Doc, what about... Um you know, some people take probiotics and, you know, it's thought that there are benefits of that. What about as part of remediation at the end of it, you know, trying to reseed, you know, the indoor environment with lactobacillus or, yeah. uh, you know, something that is presumed to be beneficial? Any comments on that? Yeah. I, 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 you know, I agree with that. I, I don't think that that's maybe such a bad idea. I think we could probably do better than just spraying it around a room. Uh, maybe putting in a pill and having a person take the pill might be the solution. Um, what I would rather see happen, though, is that, uh, you know, if we know the microorganisms that are important for human wellness, I would rather see us design buildings that encourage the colonization of those microorganisms. So I would rather, you know, have some guidelines for ventilation or for building materials or building occupancy and maintenance that we know help to contribute to those types of organisms. 
It seems, you know, Cliff, you bring up a good point because we actually clean, in, in my opinion, we clean oftentimes beyond what's normal. And, you know, I don't know if that's always a good thing or a necessary thing because we have to weigh the costs as well. That's right. Okay, that's today's show. I appreciate everybody that tuned in. I know we'll get a lot more downloads. It's vacation time, school time, kids going back to school, all that fun stuff. Next week, though, you got to be here live. I've got J. David Miller coming back. Dr. Miller, in, in my opinion, is someone that anyone doing indoor air quality should hear and and should should understand and uh should ask questions uh he's he's just a fascinating gentleman it's like talking to an encyclopedia when you talk to him so next friday at noon we'll be live with j david miller uh he's out of toronto by the way i believe university of toronto and then um two weeks from today we'll have our 10-year anniversary show so this is radio joe hughes saying thanks to my engineer john you gotta have faith of course my co-host the z-man cliff zlotnick he had the week off this week most importantly our growing group of loyal listeners please come back next friday at noon for the next broadcast of iaq radio This has been another IAQ Radio production.